This is Season 5, Episode 6 of Beyond the Illusion. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we have a conversation with Sarah Salter Kelly. During the conversation with Sarah, she details the dramatic story of her mother's murder, as well as the incredible and almost unbelievable events that followed. And like Tiana says in this conversation, there are so many layers to this story. As I listened to Sarah, I found myself in awe of the courage that she was able to find during all that she went through. And I was also amazed at how she was able to take something that seemed so extreme and foreign to most people and make it relatable to everyone and their own struggles. Let's go to that conversation now with Sarah Salter Kelly, Tiana Roser, and myself, Tim Howe. medicine yeah. but yeah let's I do it know. yeah let's do it <laughs> yeah I mean I'm sure this is generally uh, how people like to start with you is you know you have such a powerful story and I think it'll help our listeners to kind of hear mm-hmm. kind of the overview of your story absolutely absolutely and so I think one of the the initial questions that I notice that will come up when I'm doing a talk or a podcast is, is what was even the impetus to create a book, to literally write the book called Trauma as Medicine? You know, it, almost from the place of who do you think you are to say there could be such a thing as medicine and trauma? And if that's possible, what was it that came to pass to bring me to this place in time? And so what I'd like to do is, why don't I read, I'm going to read a paragraph from my introduction, and then I'm going to segue into my own personal story. Once upon a time, long, long ago, so long ago, in fact, that even the oldest of our grandmothers and grandfathers, grandmothers and grandfathers cannot remember There existed a time and a community that honored and celebrated our deepest wounds as the passage of our soul's evolution. They knew that the initiation into higher learning came from fully embodying the energy of our pain until it transformed into something inconceivable, something beyond the scope of the mind and into the wisdom of the soul. This was a process of allowing the poison of what had come to pass to rise up within, to care for this energy with wild dancing, music, crying, wailing, and other forms of embodiment until it emerged as medicine. It seems to me that these folks were in the long ago, but perhaps what I am imagining are the whispers of the ancestors yet to come. The ones who know that what the underworld has to teach us about who we are and who we are becoming is essential. This is a book for those of you who are kin to those ancient future past ancestors. Those of you who are tired of ingesting the poison of avoidance, denial and spiritual bypass and are ready to delve into the deep, dark territory of medicine making. This is a book for those of you who are hungry for more. And so in many ways, I wrote this book as an offering to my 20 year old self, you know, in uh, amongst other things, it's it's for my mother's legacy. And it's also coming from that place of somebody who went through such a deep and dark and difficult experience and trauma 
when there wasn't anything written about trauma, when there wasn't Wi-Fi, where there wasn't a language that helped to support people in recognizing how to be cognizant of what is possible in our healing journey to create transformation. And so I have to take us back in time to tell the story to 1995. And so back in 1995, I was 20 years old. And like many 20-year-olds, I felt like I had life totally figured out. You know, I had a very devout spiritual path. I had come across modern-day paganism, which really would be the Celtic roots of my ancestors when I was about 16. So I was creating my own full moon or new moon ceremonies outside on the land at a really young age. I had a great job at a music store and a partner who is you know, 27 years later is my husband and still my partner. And so I had this idea that I had life figured out. And then one of the things that happens with trauma is that we have to, we go through, it's like the tower card. We go in the tarot, we go through a complete dissolving of everything that we believe in. And on the day of December 7th, 1995, my mother, who was a life coach and had a her own business and an office in Edmonton, Alberta, was attacked in the ground level parkade of her workplace by a stranger. Now, all that we knew on the first day was that she was missing. So she was a missing woman for 10 days. Her briefcase was found in the parkade. There was uh, at least one earring that was found, gloves. And then by the end of that day, her vehicle showed up about 20 blocks away with blood in the back of it. And yet there was no evidence as to what had transpired that gave any um, helpful clues over those first 10 days. And much of that was because of how cold it was. You know, for Northerners, we have this sense of strength and resilience in being able to live in such a cold climate. And yet when the temperature sinks below minus 30, which is what it was, and I'm not sure the translation from minus 30 Celsius to Fahrenheit, but so cold that if you have any part of your body exposed, um, it'll freeze. And so it was so cold. And there was so much snow that following tracks or clues became impossible. So there had been a search that was called off. We were very deeply in that place of just having to accept that there was nothing that you could do, that you know your life has become the news story that is playing before you. And that is actually your family member that is on the news. There's such a a sense of exposure and your inability to control the fact that you're vulnerable when you're going through an unexpected trauma like this. And, and yet all you can do is just get through each moment of each day and, and pray and hope that something, you know, something good, <laughs> even in that moment of despair, that maybe something good can happen. And I remember a friend of the family after a couple of days suggesting to me that I imagine my mother in a, in a safe place and maybe even feeling her head on my lap and sending her some loving energy through my hands. And though I knew nothing about Reiki at the time, I remember doing that every night and just praying my ass off and hoping that some way this gave me the sensation that I could do something. 
And when we're powerless, you know, you know, that's part of half of the difficulty is that is that we feel like we can't do anything. And so if I focused on that, maybe it would give me the outcome I wanted, which was obviously the outcome where she was found alive. And it helped me to not perseverate or focus on all of the worst case scenarios, which end up being that real that goes through our mind that so easily will pull us into all of the possible things that can go wrong to somebody that we love if they have been kidnapped. About maybe five or six days after she went missing, we held a family press conference. And at the press conference, we shared a clue that ended up being the, the piece that led to the perpetrator. And what it was is my mom had had a one-of-a-kind ring. And this one-of-a-kind ring we'd had remade. And even though she wasn't someone who wore almost any jewelry, it just so happened that she had this. And and somebody came forward who had purchased the ring from a man by the name of Peter John Bright Eyes the, just a couple hours after she went missing. So we had a potential perpetrator and a Canadian-wide warrant was issued for his arrest. And then a couple of days later, a farmer near a small town went out to an abandoned farmhouse on his land to get something out of it. And he found my mother's body in the farmhouse. So she had been thrown into the farmhouse. She was only partially dressed. Her body was frozen. And so the problem with then finding out what happened is that then you have to deal with what happened, right? As much as there's the, the part of us when we're in the unknown is that we can direct our love and attention to what we hope will happen. However, it doesn't always turn out that way. And so then when we have the evidence, it's finding a way to almost coach our bodies, our felt sense through how do we be with this evidence? How do we be with the reality of the the marks that were on my mother's body that detailed what had happened to her? And then as the time came, you know, over a year later, there was a, a trial. The person who killed her was a stranger. He had only been out of prison for about six days. He was also First Nations. And so then there was... There was a six week long trial and he was found guilty of murder one because my mother was raped. There was a kidnapping and a confinement, which was what was necessary for a murder one conviction. Shortly after he was sent into the Edmonton maximum security prison, he hung himself by his shoelaces in his jail cell. I recall having such a sense of purposelessness, like what was the point of this all for my mother to be so brutally murdered? I mean, this was a really heinous crime for this person who, from what I understood in the news media at the time, had a really difficult life for him to be to just suicide. What was the point? So I would say in many ways, the next, you know, 25 years became this really intense journey of discovering that, listening to that, and doing my best to make meaning and value out of the experience. And in in some ways, I feel like that I was blessed in that I was exposed to um, new age philosophy from the time I was about eight years old. You know, my mom was a, a devout follower of Shakti Gawain and Louise Hay. And so a lot of the you know, the gurus of the 80s were kitchen table talk in my home. And so I would feel my mother's spirit influencing me through the years saying like, you know, Sarah, everything happens for a reason. There are no accidents. And I'd be arguing with her. And it was pretty easy for me to 
to talk to her in spirit almost easier than it was than when she was alive. And, uh, and I think, you know, mom, I used to believe you. However, you were brutally murdered in a dark place by a stranger, like literally every woman's worst fear. How can I believe you now? Right. And yet the more that I inquired and the more that I listened and the more that I created my own ceremonies around my grief and my trauma, I started to consider, well, what if there is a reason? What if there is some sort of a purpose in this? What if there is, you know, a higher plan without it being totally flaky, but from a place of there is purpose and meaning in everything that's alive on this planet? You know, you go for a walk in the woods and you don't look at the trees that have fallen down that are covered in mycelium and moss and think to yourself, oh, it's too bad it's dead. You recognize that it's part of that regenerative life force. So how could somehow my mother's death be a part of regenerative life force? How could there be meaning? The answer is in the book. (laughs) And and what else I'll, I'll speak to is that it's a story of making peace with her perpetrator. And so as much as there's this detailed process of how do we move into the underworld of our most difficult experiences from a place where we're not spiritually bypassing. We're feeling what we need to feel. We're speaking to what has been unspoken. We're tending to the needs of our own spirit. And how do we address what we're most afraid of? And so for me, for a long time, that would have been her perpetrator. And even though he was dead, I still needed to address him. You know, I still needed to speak to the impact his violence had on my life. So I created my own ceremony in which to do that. One that lasted nine months. I didn't plan that it would be nine months long. You know, when you set your intention to do something and and just put it out there that you're going to listen. That's how it all unfolded. What I did know is that I, I have a real deep awareness of, of energy cords and whether or not I feel free. And I knew that I didn't feel free in relationship with him. And I knew that I had to address any energy that was impeding that sensation of freedom. And so through the course of taking time to sit and talk with him, you know, once a week over the course of nine months, and I had really great time management skills and that my twins were in kindergarten and my son napped in the morning. And so I had like a two hour window. I I felt like this was plenty of time. And I guess it was just what I needed at, at that time. And something really, really unexpected happened. I would, I would express my anger. I would, um, I might drum out loud. I might sing out loud. I might write letters and burn them. So I did all of that kind of stuff, but I'm also really good at going on a journey and, you know, sometimes that can be similar to a lead meditation or a lead shamanic journey because I had so much practice and journeying. It's really easy for me to listen to my ancestors and go where I need to go. And so I just asked to be led where I needed to, to go and to see what I needed to see. And I had this one vision that changed everything. And that was seeing myself sitting on a sand wall with a pyramid in front of me that was about three or four stories high and I had my arm around this little boy that was about nine years old 
And if you have kids, you know, the feeling of wrapping your whole energy body around one of your children. And so I was just really holding this little guy and he was telling me that he was really concerned about something that he had to take responsibility for. And I was counseling him through that and, and coaching him. And then my conscious mind kicked in. And I realized that this little boy I had my arm around was my mother's perpetrator. And that that was me in the vision. And I pulled myself out of that vision with a whole bunch of swearing and uh, almost anger because I felt like the sense of compassion had hijacked my ceremony. Here I was trying to get angry for the first time in 10 years. And I had this big sense of love and compassion. And how could that be? How could I feel compassion for a bad guy or for a perpetrator? Because so often when we go through an experience like that, we otherize the perpetrator. And there's almost a part of us that needs the perpetrator to stay in the bad guy role, right? In order for us to keep our lives kind of contained in that I'm a good person. You're the one who did this to me. I can blame my experience on you because of what you did. And there's no room for growth in that positioning, right? Where we end up being stuck. So all of a sudden I started to contemplate who else was he aside from being a perpetrator. And for the first time in my life, over the course of time, started to wonder about, you know, he was somebody's son, he was somebody's brother, he was somebody's lover, he was somebody's dad, he was, you know, what had happened in order for him to be that guy that was in the parkade that day, somebody doesn't just wake up one day and become a murderer, what had actually been in place that had instigated that, and that, that inquiry, you know, what lasted a few years, you know, initially I was still holding some of that anger at the same time. And it was, that was super uncomfortable being in that place of, I want to jump into my wolf body and eat him. And, oh, wow. I also have this compassion for him. And so learning to be with the truth of that, this is really uncomfortable and it's true. And it's, it's simply where I'm at right now. Part of the difficulty probably was not, not being able to find any leadership outside of myself for how to address it. I even remember talking to the odd person that I knew of in more of the kind of the pagan or energy healing community that I thought would be able to offer up some, some mentoring, but it was just a foreign idea. You know, most people said, oh, why would you want to go into sacred space or create a ceremony with your mother's perpetrator? He's a bad guy. You know, that's a horrible idea. You don't, you know, you should get a shaman for that. (laughs) And I remember thinking, well, I, I think that's, I think I'm becoming that right now. I think that's what's happening. Something really beautiful, if I'm to speak to the medicine aspect, and it's hard for me to put it into a talk or into a small container. However, in 2010, which would have been about three years after I did this ceremony, I had another vision that told me to gather the bones of his ancestors as well as my mother's and understand how they wove themselves together inside of me. And so I listened to that and I remembered it it was really clear that I had to walk on the land of his ancestors and how it works in Alberta or in, uh, in Canada with First Nations territory is that there were treaties that were made, you know, going back to, I think the first 
agreements were in the 1700s, actually in the East, but I'm in the West. And so there was treaties that were made in Alberta in the late 1800s. They're called a, a reserve. If people are a band member, then they have rights to live on a certain reserve. And this is a very, just for the sake of what I'm saying, this is a, a brief description of this. There was different rules governing life on the reserve as opposed to life for the other Western settlers. I had remembered that Peter had a sister because she had been in a documentary that I had seen some of, and it was called Beating the Streets. And so I found her through Facebook, contacted her with, with a lot of uh, I was really anxious, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted from her. I just knew I wanted to have a conversation. I didn't know if she'd receive me or if I'd be totally rejected. And she was actually quite lovely in our conversations. But at that time, she wasn't living at, in Saddle Lake Reserve, which is where Peter was from. And I knew I had to go there. And so I contacted the chief and council and was put in touch with an elder who was asked to work with me. And my inquiry was simply that I wanted to learn more about the family and the people of the person who had killed my mother to bring forth understanding as to what circumstances had come to pass that instigated him being someone who could, who could create murder. That was back in 2010. And I ended up meeting with this elder on many occasions. And eventually I was asked to come in and teach some trauma as medicine healing circles. And a lot of what happened in that time period, even if I was the facilitator, was that I was doing a lot of listening because I had the, the audacity in some ways to think I knew about the history of colonization in Canada. And what I discovered as I listened and sat in circles with um, elders, often there was a an event where I always taught in a teepee. And so we'd be sitting around the fire in this teepee and, you know, I'm facilitating the circle, but as we do a sharing round, I'm just listening to the stories of um, the repression that these people have gone through. Another really unusual synchronicity is that the place that I was, that I facilitated at on a few occasions is a First Nations college, but it actually was a former residential school. And it was the residential school where Peter's mom would have gone to. A few years later, I ended up meeting his sister at that same event. And we walked around this land, sharing our stories, hers of overcoming trauma and addiction, mine of how I dealt with my mother's homicide, and really creating a container to have some difficult conversations recognizing that both of us came from very different lifestyles, very different circumstances, and yet still being able to see each other and witness each other. Also conscious of how strange it was that we were on the land where her mother had gone to school, her older siblings had, and likely had been another one of the sources of trauma because the history of residential schools is similar, I believe, to boarding schools in the United States, where children were taken from their parents. They were forcibly removed and forced to participate in school and all sorts of other abuses transpired over the course of time that the residential schools were operating in Canada. And the last one closed, I believe, in 1997. So it's not that long ago in history. And so that, that, that's a 
some of what I detail in trauma as medicine is how do we go into these really heart scraping difficult experiences and be curious about who the other is and allow our inquiry of the other not only to formulate a new perspective on who we are ourselves but even perhaps on what our society is and so since then i even do talks with his sister on healing trauma where we both share our stories or about reconciliation that is an incredible incredible story with so many layers of gifts of understanding and healing through that experience that we could talk about i guess I would say first and foremost, I kind of want to like what I appreciate about your book is, you know, it has both your story in there, uh, which is so moving. And yet it has like very, it's very practical. It has, it lays out, you know, steps and tools. And I know just from our guests on the podcast, so many people, it's trauma that has, you know, initiated them or awakened them spiritually and yet it's not something, even though I feel like probably now compared to just even 20, 25 years ago, our society is much, much more open to that, but still, of course, has a long ways to go. But then I look at like, I notice in the spiritual communities, how people are into shadow work and people are wanting to do ancestral healing and people are into um this plant medicine is really emerging. And I feel like it's part, there's this big shift happening where we're, I think it's like embracing the feminine. A lot of it is because a lot of the gifts of trauma as medicine seem to me to be about being with our body, being with our emotions, accepting what we're experiencing and all of that. Uh, anyway, I wanted just to talk about some of the the tools that you have in there, because I think that thankfully, not everybody will be able to relate to your story specifically in their life to the, you know, intensity of the level. But I do like in your book that you mentioned how, you know, any kind of trauma, it's still significant and we need to acknowledge it. I think what happens is we start measuring and comparing our trauma. You know, and people will be like, oh, well, I didn't have that happen. So then it, it's probably not important to look at this. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I share. It's like, here's this extreme version. And we all have the right experiences. And sometimes it can be what didn't happen. You know, it can be the, the desire for love and connection as a child that one doesn't receive at all. Not because the parents were bad, but they didn't know how to connect. So that sense of, you know, wanting something that's not there, that's unnameable because it's precognitive. And so I think there's so much to recognize that whatever's arising for each individual, it's important because it's what's happening for you. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned in there about being able to create a container. And, and, and I think that is super important because our society, our culture, our modern culture doesn't create a con- container for grief. And, <laughs> and I have a lot of clients that come, you know, cause I do spiritual regression as well. And people are wanting to connect to their soul or their guides and get answers. Like, why, why did this happen? Why, why mm-hmm. a lot of times, like people are kind of trying to just jump. They want to, you said something also in there, in your book about kind of like how we're trying to like, just get through it as, as quick as possible and resume, you know, back to normal. And well, um, it, it doesn't work like that. And I really that appreciate yeah. you pointing that out because I see that a lot and I get it, right? It's like, oh, I don't feel good. I, I'll do anything to just like feel better versus like accepting like, oh, this 
this is the thing that's in my life right now. And uh, so, so even just the name of your book, you know, trauma as medicine, I think just if we can start to reframe and look from a different perspective and create that in our society, then we can have an easier time being with whatever is showing up versus thinking that like, if something bad, I'm doing air quotes for my <laughs> <the> listeners <laughs> <can't say that>. <laughs> bad, um, <laughs> happens. Uh, a lot of times my clients will say like, oh, they think that they did something wrong, right? If, right. Some, if trauma happens or loss happens, they're like, oh, I thought I was in a good, you said even something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, everything's going well. And then if something, you know, that appears to be bad happens, they're thinking like, oh, I must have, you know, sort of displeased God or something yeah. like that. Part of a grief process too. Like I think, you know, I I had somebody do an intense psychic regression with me, maybe I don't know in in 2010 around then. And what came up was realizing that on some level I felt like it was my fault. And and so I think that we hold those little pieces. It's just a normal part of the grief process. And then once we mature enough, and this takes time, right? It doesn't happen like like that for listeners, I'm waving my arms in the air and snapping my fingers, Um, you know, but it takes time for us to move into not taking it so personally. It's when we can take, when we can step back enough from a trauma that we can witness it, right? We're not taking it quite so personally. We've done some of the emotional work around it. We can start to be in that place of contemplating um, the medicine in the acute place of trauma, if somebody had said to me, you know, back in 1995, you know, Sarah, you're going to make great medicine out of your mother's homicide, I would have probably punched them in the face. You know, like I was, I was a little punk rocker. So it definitely wouldn't have gone over well. However, when we have a little bit of distance to not be in such a personal place, then we can invite that question in and be like, hey, if there was medicine in this, what could it be? You know, I, I, there's so many things I wanted to say, but you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll first, I'll start with like, thank you for, for telling your story, you know, for coming forward Mm -hmm. and, and tell, letting everyone know what you went through because, um, you know, I thought about, you know, as I was reading your book and, and as I was listening to you tell the, retell the story again, it was occurred to me, like, you know, everyone has trauma, of course, like we, you were saying Mm -hmm. earlier, but the level and the intensity that you had to endure was just beyond the scope of like even my imagination. Like it just seems Mm. like so difficult and powerful, you know, but you know, you did it, you faced it, you know, it's not like you ran away. And I think a lot of people have that tendency to like, just curl up and just be like, you know, this is it. Like I I don't, I can't deal with it, but you didn't, you know, you turned and you faced it. And, and I found that to be, really moving for me personally, because, you know, whenever I'm going through something and it's, it's not, it's nothing like you went through, it's hard. It's hard to really look at it and say like, you know, like you were saying, Tiana, you know, like accept it. Like this is, this is what's happening instead of just being like, I want this to be over and, and everything to go back. But, you know, having the courage to look at it and face it and, and even explore it just, seemed to me like, you know, that was where the real work happened. Yeah, I just found that like, so incredible that you were able to do that. Because, you know, especially in this time, you know, for our society, for our world, we're all going through a lot, like it's even seems to be ramping up like the intensity of the conflict and the, 
you know, just the things that we're going through and the things that we're having to look at right now and face and, and be like, yeah, these are problems and we need to fix them. And it's uncomfortable and it's hard, but I love how you had this idea of, of journeying. And I don't know where you got this from. Like maybe it was your medicine journeys or, or what, but you had this concept of doing a journey and you even described like how to go into the underworld in a journey like method. Can you kind of describe where you came up with that idea of journeying and then like how you came up with that specific one to go into the underworld? Cause that really piqued my curiosity. For sure, Tim. That's a great question. I think that that would have started off many, 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 many moons ago. Uh, when I first read Starhawk's book, Spiral Dance, which I think was written in 79. And I'm pretty sure she had some chapters, which would have just been called trance. And so I read these at about 16, 17, 18. And then in my early 20s, I took some classes that were mostly focused on women's circles. And in the women's circles, we did led journeys into the underworld. And so I had already become somewhat adept. I think we would often then just move through uh, envisioning a hole at the base of a tree, this connection to the tree of life. And I could always feel that in my, in my belly and my bones. And you know, when you get that yes feeling in your belly, you just kind of know like, oh, okay, this is the, the right place or the right sensation that's going to lead me to where I need to go. And so that would have been when I first started out using what I call shamanic journey in the book. And that would have been the precipice from which I did my own journeys in the ceremonies that I speak to that I held with my mother's perpetrator would have been all based on on practice. And so sometimes it would have been, as I said, what I had read in, in Starhawk's book or other books. And so books definitely can inform us to a place where we can then go and practice on our own and see if something's a fit for us. And then practicing it in groups. In my early 30s, I apprenticed in something called the um, Inca Medicine Wheel tradition for about five years with a teacher that was out of Massachusetts, actually. She taught, though, in northern Alberta. And I went to Peru on many occasions with her in the high Andes and in the Amazon. And she used more of what is a traditional shamanic journey, which her training would have been at Four Winds. Um, very similar, though, to the shamanic journeys. I've trained with Nikki Scully that she would utilize. So it seems to me, as I've tracked it myself, that it's come out of the Michael Harner, more core shamanism practices with the awareness that or, or what is the sensation of what is in the underworld i think there's a universal concept of that if all of us if we were to sit down in a group of 20 people and be like okay well if you send your imagination down into the earth what does it feel like we would end up having some common experiences and common language right so i believe that there is a collective sensation that already exists and so if we can imagine that underneath us that beneath us is also holding what we can't see because we can't see it like in reality you know it's very practical and how could we form a relationship with this unknown and what helps us when we're tending to our, our, the soul territory, if you will, of our wounds, our traumas, our fears, 
it helps us to go somewhere that's not held in a box. So I think oftentimes in more Western psychiatric or psychological perspectives, we think that there's a very cut and dry context. You know, we're going to go, we're going to do this, then this is going to happen. And this is the result. And it actually doesn't work that way when we're healing our hearts and healing our soul wounds. So what I love about the underworld is that it gives us a place that we can form a relationship with that's ours. Like mine, it would be look and feel different than yours. There would still be some commonality, but you could discern and decide for yourself what your issue from your six-year-old self looks like and feels like. And you could start to pull in your sensory awareness to notice it and then to ask this part of yourself, what do you need to heal? So we're using so much of our imagination, so much of our sense of play and creativity, even though it could be a big fear, we could be having a conversation with our greatest demon. And instead of getting rid of our demon, we're learning how to have a conversation with it so we can find out what is necessary to elicit transformation or freedom instead of the old paradigm, which is like, let's cut off and get rid of everything we don't like. Instead, it's relationship-based. It's, okay, you're here. I get it. You know, I don't really want you to be here, but you've been hanging out with me for my whole life. So obviously I have to do something. And part of my realization with learning to talk to my mom's perpetrator, even though he was dead. And, and in the book, I share how after I forgave him, he became my spirit guide, which was totally unexpected. And so it was, crazy. Yeah. it was crazy, right? You know, but I could feel him around me for a long time and I was ignoring it. And it felt like he had power over me because I wasn't facing it. So if we want to live as conscious and powerful beings, we have to be willing to have the conversations and direct our energy towards what we see as our is oppressing us, right? We need to be willing to, to share how we feel and to face that. And then the fear transforms. Whereas if we're continuously in the place of, oh, I can't go that way because, you know, that might be uncomfortable, we're going to stay stuck in the same place. And so that's our, that's where our power lays in our choice of what we do with it. Do we face the fear? Do we, you know, I, I mentioned creating my own experiences to address fear, such as in the book, such as going into the parkade where my mom was murdered and learning to walk at night again. But I also talk a bit about plant medicine, about ayahuasca. And one of the beautiful things about plant medicine is that it does generate an experience inside of ourselves that engages our sensory awareness so that we can then in a safe environment, explore what needs to come to the surface to heal. And that's one of the powerful teachings that we can, that can support us in addressing trauma. I like how in your book, you both, you were just talking about like facing the fear but that you also, because I, I see this with clients where, yeah, sometimes people are like, I'm going to face a fear. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be powerful. And then they don't, you have tending to the victim's needs. And I, I like that you also have the other side because people get polarized and they're like, oh, no, no. They abandon that part of themselves because they don't want to be weak and they want to be strong. But you show how we need both of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not black and white. You know, mm -hmm. as much as I said, I, for some time I was holding anger towards my mom's perpetrator and compassion at the same time. We also have that, that little girl or little boy self that needs to be cared for and acknowledged. And 
if we're not caring for or acknowledging that part of ourselves, whatever present issue we're trying to deal with, we're going to respond to it from the the point of view of that unresolved wound, whether it's our three-year-old self or four-year-old self. And so often people's habits will be to to ignore it, to push it down, to tell that little boy, little girl self to shut up. And that just ends up creating so much more internal war and conflict, right? Because it's like, well, actually, guess what? He or she's never going to go away because you won't validate that their needs are important. And if you won't validate that their needs are important, nobody else will. But half the time people are projecting their unvalidated needs on the rest of the world, (laughs) expecting to get them from relationships or somewhere else. And really, the work is invalidating it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you go through like, I mean, of course, it's over 25 years. So yeah, you go through this whole journey, this whole cycle, you know, like, like Tim was saying, I think, you know, that's happening, you know, on a different level Mm -hmm. on the planet right now, where yeah, we're like, like what you said as well, like about the otherizing where we're like polarized, and we're like, oh, you know, we're the good ones, and you're the bad ones. You know, we're fighting each other. And then finally, like, like you're saying, we have to find a place to accept and face both and own all of it as, Uh, as ourself to move into that oneness. Of course, like I said before, like other people won't have such an extreme experience as yours, but I like that. I mean, really our individual journey is the collective journey. When once we realize like, oh, we're all one, then you doing that work is doing the work for the collective and you doing the work with the white colonialism and the first nations and wanting to, you know, build those bridges and bring that together is helping that for your ancestors and my ancestors and Tim's ancestors and all of that, which is so beautiful. Yeah, because it really is all an internal conflict. Everything that we see in the world is a part of us and that part of us is being expressed to us outside of our body, you know, Mm -hmm. so that we can see it and witness it and understand it from a different perspective. And, you know, that's, it's so funny because it's like that, that story you told in the book where you were a kid and you were riding your bike and you crashed in the street and you wanted someone to know that you were hurt. So you just stayed there. (laughs) So you, (laughs) and and I thought that was hilarious because it's so true. Like you, you just wanted someone to acknowledge, you know, the fact that you had this happen to you. And as soon as someone did, like that was all you needed, really, you know, they did and they took care of you and you were fine. And so many of us, we do that even as adults, you know, I, I do it, you know, I do it all the time. And I just want someone to know, like, this is my struggle, you know? And I've realized that it's just a part of me that hasn't been acknowledged, you know? It hasn't been attended to or accepted, really, you know? And even, like, when I I had this episode the other day where I – it was so funny because I've been, like, meditating. I've been on this streak, like, keeping track of, like, I've meditated so many days in a row now, and I haven't had an outburst or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, I had this outburst, right? And, like, I got mad at this guy. And, you know, my family saw me just, like, at my worst moment, really, you know? And and I thought about it. And then as I – and it really bothered me. And I came home, and then there was this passage in, in the Law of One because there's this – there's this book called the law of one and these people make a post every day. That's like a little section of the book. And I saw the post and it was like, 
had to do with anger and this outburst of anger. And I was like, wow, that's kind of weird synchronicity. So I read it and it was talking about how the anger is a symptom of random energy that's being expelled from your body. But the random, it's not, it seems random, but the random comes from some distortion inside of you. And so what happens is there's an event and then this energy comes up inside of you. And instead of, you know, you accepting it and loving it, you, you let it become something else. And so it becomes this really angry moment, you know, it becomes this Mm -hmm. moment of like, Hey, I, I lost complete control. And you do when people are angry, you can tell they're just completely out of control. Like they can't even control it. So it, it was, it made sense to me and it, and it ties back into this because it said that, you know, there are two ways to handle this. Like the people who take that anger and they turn it into energy so that they can control the situation and control other people with that energy. That's one way of dealing with it. Right. And the other way is simply accepting that that's part of you, that there's this distortion inside of you, that that is you, it's part of you and just love that part of you and, and accept that maybe it comes out as anger. That's okay. You know, it doesn't, it's not the end of the world you know, it made all the difference. Like I immediately felt better. I immediately felt like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I can really accept this. You know, I can, I can, and I can move on. Like there's tomorrow will come, you know, like it's going right. to be okay. So. Right. It makes me think of um, Matt Kahn's book, whatever arises, love that. Oh, your anger's right. arising. It wants some love. <laughs> your sadness yeah. is arising. It wants some love. Whatever's yeah. arising. Love that. You mentioned in your book that we can't heal trauma without divine support, which I I think is such a wonderful point. You had this kind of mantra or prayer that was like, I don't know what to do. Please help me with this. Yeah, I think that's just so... You know, the power of, we talk about this a lot in the podcast, and or I, I do, <laughs> the power of surrender. I just think it, we have to keep going back to it. There is, you know, particularly for people in, on the spiritual journey, you know, like you're talking about spiritual bypass, because there is a lot of, there is a point where you're just like, oh, only good thoughts. I'm only going to focus on the good right, thoughts. Right. I'm going to be, I'm an empowered creator and I am, you <laughs> Cancel know. Cancel anything negative. Uh, yeah. yeah. It makes me crazy. But, but there's, <laughs> there's like, you know, there's, yes, there's our divine self where everything is perfect, but also we're here in the human body where oh. we're working through stuff and to be able to, yeah, it's so hard sometimes in our culture to learn the value of vulnerability and surrender and, you know, how we do anything to avoid the feeling of helplessness and not being in control. But if we could utilize this tool that you have and just, you know, that whole let go, let God, and just ask for help, there's so much help and support in the unseen realms out there, but we have to open to it. And so I love just that little, I don't know what to do. Please help me with this. It's perfect. It's simple and humble and beautiful. Thank you. Don't you notice too, the difference when you put that prayer in your own practice of, because it's the truth. I actually really don't know what to do. Like 
every day there's something that I have no idea what to do with it. And there's such internal war to speak to the, about what Tim was saying. Like when we create that internal war, because we think we have to have the answers and that desire to, to create them or our fear of, of being a failure because we haven't. Whereas if we just like tell the truth, I have no effing idea what to do. Um, God, great spirit, whatever your, your name is for source, I'm open. And I notice such a difference when in that allowing for the help to come in and the invitation, one experiences it in such a more profound way than if we're coming from the paradigm of, I always have to do it alone. There's no help for me. My life's extra hard. You know, that whole frequency of energy is so much lower. And so often if someone is stuck in that, they can't even um, sense all of that support that's around them, just waiting for the invitation. I love the word invitation. It it feels so lovely. And this is kind of like what we're talking about, what I would often tell people about why I love to travel solo internationally Mm. a lot was because every single time, inevitably, there's some point where I totally don't know what to do. And I'm totally out of my depths, even Mm. if I had fully planned, whereas like here in the United States, you always got your phone and you've got all these people and your connections. Mm. And so there's just really never a point like that. But every time I travel, there's some point where I absolutely just have to ask a stranger for help. And, and I'm always blown away. it, It opens me for these like really beautiful moments of how humanity is incredible and people that don't speak your language and they're just trying so hard to help you. And you're just so touched like, Oh yes, at our core, we're all one and we're all beautiful. But like, if I had everything figured out with my little phone everywhere I went and that I would never have that opportunity to be able to receive that. And it's yeah. the same with the divine. Sometimes something breaks so that we have the opportunity to open and receive this beautiful divine support that we weren't allowing in because we had it all figured out. Yeah. 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 If we have the answers, we don't receive that extra support. And, and it's, so it's an interesting time that we're in now with so much less travel because I can relate to that too. Most of my trips I did to Peru or South America were without my husband and children. And there was such, there's just the sense of being more connected. So I, I can definitely understand that. And so as our culture seems to be pushing to move to a more tech-based world, part of my own inquiry is how do I, yes, reap the benefits of the resources that the tech world can offer. However, make sure that I'm making the human connections because it's those human connections in person mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. actually generate higher vibrations of consciousness mm-hmm. and allow in for the synchronicity and for that divinity and for that that sense of wonderment. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I'm so glad we found you and that we had this great conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, our time is up, but I wanted to ask you if you could please let our listeners know where they can find your book or get in contact with you if they want to do that. Um, Is there somewhere they can go? Absolutely, Tim. Thanks for asking. Everything can be found on my website, which is sarahsalterkelly.com. And for ordering in the United States, it might be a bit cheaper to order my book through Amazon, which at amazon.com, just Google trauma or search trauma as medicine. But if you want to skip Amazon, you can order it from my website as well. My husband is my shipping company. So 
No problem. <laughs> we'll send it out. All right. It's a fantastic book. I really recommend that everybody read it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And, and I'm also on Facebook um, and Instagram under Sarah Salton Kathy. Okay, Sarah. And should, you should make it a movie. I was going to say that too. Oh. I think it would be. <laughs> I'm waiting don't read books. Totally. Yeah. I'm waiting for it. So let's putting put that out. out. Let's co we'll co-create yeah. that. We're, totally, we're doing it. Now. It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Lovely to meet both of you. And thank you so much for taking the time to read my book and hear my story and share. Yeah, you're yeah, welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Illusion. I'd like to say thank you very much to Sarah for taking the time to talk with us and for sharing her personal story and knowledge with us. If you'd like to learn more about Sarah and her book, you can go to her website, sarahsalterkelly.com. And that's Sarah with an H, Salter, S-A-L-T-E-R, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y.com. And you can also find her book on Amazon by searching for Trauma as Medicine. Before we go, I'd like to say thank you to Tiana Roser for all the work she does to keep this podcast going. And I'd also like to say thank you to Casey Henson for providing the music we use on this podcast. For more information about us or to access past episodes, please visit our website, beyondtheillusionpodcast.com. And you can find us on social media as well. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating for us. This will help other people find us. Take care.